This is democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, December 19, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. That sort of hissing noise you hear in the background may sound like static, but it's actually ocean waves at the beach. Last weekend, my wife and I flew out to California to visit with my son and meet his girlfriend. We've never met her, even though she's been dating my son for over two years. Well, why haven't we met her yet? COVID, mainly. We haven't had the opportunity to see my son since Christmas two years ago, just as COVID was getting out of the gate. Or perhaps escaping from the lab, whatever. We had a wonderful time with both of them, and it was nice to be in California again. My wife and I lived in Southern California for many years before moving to St. Louis, Missouri back in 2014. But I'm no stranger to Missouri. I grew up in Florissant, Missouri. I attended McClure Senior High School and then went on to college at the University of Missouri in Columbia, graduating with an engineering degree. A couple of years after graduating, I got the urge to change my scene, so I made like the Beverly Hillbillies and loaded up the truck and moved to... Well, not to Beverly Hills, but to a place in the San Fernando Valley called Woodland Hills. And it wasn't a truck either, it was a Buick Skyhawk. Anyway, you get the point. Many years and many earthquakes later, I ended up living a couple miles from the beach in Ventura County. The ocean waves you hear in the background is from Mandalay State Beach in Ventura County. For some perspective, Ventura County borders Los Angeles County on the east and Santa Barbara County on the west. Yeah, not a bad place to live, actually. Housing prices are pretty good, relatively speaking, and daily life is pretty much the same as any suburban area across the U.S. So it was nice to go back and see my old digs. We spent only a few days in Southern California before heading back to St. Louis. Omicron hung like a proverbial sword of Damocles over our heads as they packed us into fully loaded airplanes. And, you know, travel is always a pain. I've traveled the world for many years, but it is especially painful now with the added stress of COVID-19 and all of its variants. So it's good to be back safe and sound. If you've been listening to any of the past few podcasts and read any of the blogs on the democracyonthemove.org website, you'll know that I've been focusing a lot on politics in the Midwest, particularly in Missouri. This is a nationwide podcast, but I've kept the focus lately on Missouri, mainly because I feel that this very state I now dwell in is perhaps a metaphor for many of the political ills we've been experiencing nationwide these past few years. Like a lot of states in the Midwest, Missouri used to be a lot more progressive than it appears to be now. There are various reasons for this phenomenon. I personally believe there are still many people in this state and throughout the heartland that remain progressive, but their voices have been getting drowned out over the past decade or so by an increasingly vocal hyper-conservative minority. And yes, I would call it a minority because many of the policies being pushed by this minority are in direct conflict with the needs and values of the majority in the Midwest. For example, we see rural hospitals and health clinics closing their doors due to a lack of money as well as consolidation with the hospitals in the big cities. If rural folks can even afford health care, they're still forced to drive perhaps 100 miles or more into a big city to meet with their doctors. Meanwhile, state legislatures throughout the heartland try to cut Medicaid further, despite overwhelming support for it from the majority. Also, we've seen the proliferation of factory farms that pollute the lakes and streams with untreated animal waste and put a foul stench in the air, 
while largely conservative state legislatures sabotage any local efforts to control the pollution. It's also putting local farmers out of business. Further, we've seen full-frontal attacks on public education, driven by big businesses that want to get in on the billions of dollars in what they call the education industry by pushing for public funding of private and charter schools. This abandons those in rural areas who have little, if any, access to any of these publicly funded private schools. In short, a majority of people in the so-called flyover states are being done in by policies being pushed by a minority of hyperconservatives. How do they do it? How can a minority rule a majority? Well, the sad truth about American politics is that a minority can control a majority if they talk loudly and intimidate politicians by threatening to out-primary them. Yes, those primary elections are important because in our highly gerrymandered system, that's where the competition really takes place. And as it turns out, the most motivated and loud minority know this truth about politics, and they know that the primaries are where they install their candidates, so they show up in large numbers to vote in these elections. So the question is, how do you motivate this loud minority? The answer is that it takes a lot of airtime paid for with strong financial backing. And when I talk about airtime, I'm not just talking about radio and TV, but also printed media and social media. These forms of media are where the manipulation really takes place. And yes, I'll call it what it is, manipulation. Now, how does this manipulation work? Well, I'll give you a personal example of what I learned back when I was living in California. One of the many hats I wore at work was as a marketing coordination manager. It's a fancy title, but the reality was that I worked mainly as a technical assistant within a marketing group for a high-tech company. I'm not an expert in marketing, nor have I had any formal training in it, but over the course of four-plus years in this department, I learned a lot about the science of persuasion. As a fairly trite example of what I learned, let me ask you a question. Are you more likely to press on a button in a website in order to get more information if the button is blue or if it is green? Well, the answer really depends on a lot of factors, such as the colors being used on the rest of the web page, the placement of the button, the text that leads you to it, and so on. But if you could isolate just the color of the button itself, which one is more likely to be pressed? Well, honestly, marketing people don't know for sure, but with a bit of creativity, you can run what are called A-B split tests to find out. That's A-B as in the letters A and B, A-B split tests. So how does this work? Well, through some fancy software, you set up your website to arbitrarily split website visitors into two groups, an A group and a B group. Now, the A group gets the green button. The B group gets the blue button. And through the magic of software, you can track visitors that push the button and gather statistics on which one gets pushed more often. After running your test for a week or so, you now know which color attracts the most clicks. So you make that color permanent for everyone that visits that site. Yes, it is a bit of spying by companies, but they consider it morally acceptable because, well, it helps them sell products. Now you can expand this concept to try out different text on a page. Which text attracts more viewers? Well, run a test and find out. And if you scale this process up, you can begin to see patterns emerge in people's online behavior. You can begin to learn what phrases and themes attract more attention. Many companies, such as YouTube, have famously turned this into a highly developed science. They can learn what videos you prefer to see after having viewed other videos, 
lo and behold, algorithms are built. Algorithms whose sole purpose is to get you to look at more and more videos and ultimately consume more product. Now, does this sound like mind control to you? Does this even sound legal? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a philosopher, so it's difficult for me to comment on the ethics and the legalities involved, but it does present some interesting dilemmas. For example, when it comes to politics, how far should one be allowed to go in recruiting people into a radical idea or concept? Should one be able to lie in order to manipulate the masses? And if not, who enforces fairness? Who stops the lying? How can one prevent the manipulation without appearing to be a manipulator? So allow me to step back a bit. The science of consumer behavior and mass manipulation didn't start with social media. It started a very long time ago. It probably has its roots going back to ancient times. Anytime you have a product to sell, you're going to want to know how to pitch it to folks to get them to buy it. The product could be recruitment into some sort of belief, a religion perhaps, or it could be as simple as trying to trade a sack of beans for a goat. Pitching product probably wasn't much of a science back in ancient times, but the concept of pitching was there just the same. You, the seller, want to sell something, so you have to find ways to approach people and present the best of what you have to offer. And if you manipulate them in the process, well, that's just part of selling, right? When printed media hit the scene with the Gutenberg press back in the 15th century, it didn't take long for people to start using the press to create ads that helped them sell a product or an idea. No longer was selling done from person to person, but suddenly it became possible for one person to sell to a massive crowd. This was the birth of modern marketing, which is the study of selling on a massive scale. And this new study of marketing had the potential to move nations. Let Them Eat Cake, for example, was dubiously attributed to Marie Antoinette. Reportedly, she never uttered those words, but it was words nevertheless, along with numerous printed stories and articles that successfully vilified her and the entire French royal family and eventually sparked the French Revolution. Yes, a small number of people armed with modern media mobilized an entire nation. That's not to say that the words alone created the revolution, but it fed into a narrative that was consumed by an angry and desperate population that lit the spark. When radio emerged as a powerful source of media, it didn't take long for it to be used by individuals to manipulate the masses. In the late 1930s, for example, a watchdog group called the Institute for Propaganda Analysis, or IPA, became alarmed by what they considered propaganda being pushed by a Roman Catholic priest named Father Charles Coughlin. Now, Fa Father Coughlin was an early radio personality that recruited his on-air flock by pushing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and ultimately praised the policies of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. In fact, one of Father Coughlin's slogans was, quote, less care for internationalism and more concern for national prosperity, unquote. That kind of sounds like Make America Great Again, doesn't it? Now, Father Coughlin reportedly gathered an audience of more than 30 million people. And we all know what happened in the next few years, where America and much of Europe and Asia was pulled into a struggle against outright fascism. The fascist ideas themselves depended heavily on the use of mass media to spread hatred, lies, and conspiracy theories about deep state nefarious forces driven by various groups of demonized people, including Jews. 
So the concepts of mass recruitment into an ideology are not new. It's true that social media over the internet turns up the volume tremendously, but the underlying principle is not new. And the underlying principle always requires a unifying force, something that compels people and pulls them in and gets their undivided attention. It's even better if it can get people to not pay attention to other factors, to suspend their ability to think critically, to prevent them from looking for validation, to discourage them from questioning what they're being told. Well, it turns out there's a tried and true method of motivation that works every single time. It goes by a single word, fear. Fear is the fuel that powers recruitment into an ideology. Time and time again throughout history, manipulators have shown that nothing works like fear when it comes to getting people to do something, to purchase a product, or to act in a way that may be counter to their own self-interest. Think about it. Unless you can be convinced that something is a direct threat to you or your loved ones, you probably wouldn't pay much attention. If you're young and healthy, for example, you probably won't worry about the issue of health care. But there's always the possibility that you might get injured in a motorcycle accident, or get diabetes, or slice off a limb in a farming accident. I could paint a picture in your mind of being laid up in a hospital missing half your face from being dragged across the pavement in a motorcycle accident. Or worse yet, your child suffering in an ICU ward, the victim of a hunting accident. And I could complete a horrific scenario by painting a picture in your mind of you living on the street, having lost your home to pay off your medical bills after having a heart attack. You see what I'm doing here? I'm using fear to get you interested in healthcare. Of course, in this particular example about healthcare, my motivations are good and moral. I believe that's the case anyways, because I don't want to see you or your loved one get hurt and then go broke paying for medical bills. But I could just as easily use fear to motivate you in a way that's less than ethical. Let me ask you a question. What do you fear? What do people in general fear? Now, you could consult Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a good starting point. This hierarchy of needs was created by Abraham Maslow in 1943, where he identified an interdependent set of human needs where higher needs rest upon lower basic needs. These basic needs are wired directly into our fears. The most basic level in this hierarchy includes things like food and shelter, clothing, and sexual activity. The next level up includes health personal security, financial security, and emotional security. The next higher layer includes needs associated with love and social belonging. Now, there are higher layers, but fear is more associated with the lower layers. And when I say fear, I mean the type of fear that makes you forget about everything, even your ability to reason and use critical thinking. People that use fear to manipulate will do so by challenging the base needs of your hierarchy and get you to forget about everything else. For example, your job is in jeopardy because it's being outsourced to a different country, or it's being automated, or people flooding over the border are coming to take your job. That's fear. As another example, your health is at risk because people flooding over the border are bringing disease and drugs and violence with them. There's another set of fears for you. And as a final example, the one that really hits at the heart is that the country is moving beyond you. Your entire way of life is becoming obsolete because of shifting demographics, where your religious beliefs and your very connection with your society is being cut off by people in faraway cities that have no concern over your well-being. 
These people in faraway cities include politicians that are more concerned with activities in their own swamp of corruption than they are with what's really going on with the American people. Is this true? Is there really a swamp in our nation's capital? Well, it's easy to be talked into this concept by someone whose main objective is to manipulate you and your fears to get you to dispense with your natural ability to think critically and only believe in what they tell you. But how can this happen, you might ask? I mentioned the IPA previously, the Institute for Propaganda Analysis, which sounded the alarm about Father Coughlin back in the late 1930s. As he described in the book The Cult of Trump, written by Stephen Hassan, the IPA commissioned another book called The Fine Art of Propaganda, a study of Father Coughlin's speeches. The authors of this book observed Coughlin's speeches and summarized what they saw as seven techniques of propaganda used by him. Now keep in mind that the purpose of propaganda is to manipulate you. Now just some of the techniques of propaganda include name-calling. Now this occurs when a person attaches negative or derogatory labels to another person that enables listeners, or should I say potential recruits, to condemn them without examining the evidence. Do you remember expressions like lying Ted Cruz or low-energy Jeb Bush or crooked Hillary? Now, Donald Trump had a derogatory name for anyone and everyone that opposed him. People listening to Trump's speeches may have found themselves repeating these terms almost unconsciously, worse yet, believing them without examining the evidence. In other words, setting aside their ability to think critically and, in the process, setting themselves up for manipulation through blind fear. Another technique is called glittering generalities. This is the opposite of name-calling, where a set of positive attributes and virtuous words are used to make us accept a person without examining the evidence. This would include words like fantastic and smart and great. Now, Trump used and continues to use these words to describe people he admires, even our classic foes like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un. And as a master manipulator, again gets his recruits to believe these terms without examining the evidence. Another technique is called card stacking. I think a more contemporary term might be cherry picking, where only the facts that support a narrative are presented as evidence. Trump gained a lot of traction with this technique during an interview with CNN's Don Lemon back in 2015, where he said all immigrants flowing over the Mexican border were rapists and murderers. Well, the fact is that, yes, some were and are rapists and murderers, but the vast majority were and are law-abiding, honest people. In fact, it was shown that the rate of bad guys to good guys among this group of people is lower than the general American population. But this fact was left out in the cherry-picking process, allowing people to accept it as absolute truth, again, without examining the evidence. And the last technique I'll talk about is called the bandwagon. This is a very popular technique. It says that people who are on board with an idea, a policy, or action are part of the in-crowd, and those that are not on this bandwagon are part of the problem. In more formal terms, it presents a false dichotomy argument. In other words, you're either with us or against us. Now, Trump is not the only one to use this technique. George W. Bush famously issued this false dichotomy on an international scale in the days leading up to the Iraq War by saying that other countries are either with us or against us. Do you remember when Bush talked about changing the name of French fries to Freedom Fries? Name-calling was his reaction to France after they refused to get on the bandwagon leading us into war. The title of this discussion is The Cult of Trump with a question mark in the end. 
as in the cult of Trump? See, I hesitate to believe that Trump is a cult leader, but I have to admit that with each passing day, I get closer to accepting it as a reality. For the record, I don't call all Republicans members of a cult. Far from it. Most Republicans don't fall into a cult mindset, but some, I believe, get really close to it. In past podcasts, you may have heard me talk about the GQP instead of the GOP. It's simply my personal way to distinguish between the two groups. The Q within GQP is a reference to the QAnon faction of the GOP, the Republican Party. The GQP are the people that, in a metaphoric sense, drank the Kool-Aid and have lost all connection with their ability to use their God-given abilities to think critically. They are, I believe, members of a cult. My fear is that over time, more and more people slide from the GOP into the GQP. And this is alarming, especially considering that when you go to the polls these days, you generally are limited to picking either a Republican or Democrat. According to Gallup, if there were a three-way race between Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, Independents would win approximately 40 to 45 percent of the vote, with the Democrats and Republicans splitting the difference. So nobody has a clear majority, but in our current system of using what's called plurality voting, that's okay. He or she who gets the majority of votes wins. But alas, there is no independent party. So mathematically speaking, our entire nation could slide into a minority-controlled GQP. Am I being alarmist? Am I trying to put fear in you? Yes and yes. But I'm not trying to manipulate you with fear. I'm simply asking you to consider the facts. Look at how we're evolving as a nation and set aside your fears to look rationally at what's going on as you move forward in your daily life. As far as culture concerned, I encourage you to have a look at the book by Stephen Hassan. The complete title is The Cult of Trump, a leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control. Mr. Hassan was himself a member of the Mooney cult and worked within the cult as a recruiter. He broke out of that cult after a successful intervention from his family. He emerged from this experience with keen insight into how cults recruit members and maintain their loyalty through a manipulative system of rewards and punishments, perhaps best described by B.F. Skinner's work on conditioning human behavior. Stephen Hassan is considered one of the foremost authorities on cults and mind control. He holds a master's degree in counseling psychology, is a licensed mental health counselor, and a nationally certified counselor. He has written several books that have received praise from former cult members and psychologists. The Cult of Trump was released in October 2019, so it may appear a bit dated, as it doesn't mention the latest developments such as Trump's denialism of COVID or the attempted coup on January 6, 2020. Despite being slightly dated, the book is nevertheless a good read. Hassan extends his knowledge of cults into analyzing the behaviors of Donald Trump. He draws parallels between Trump and some of the most notorious cult members like Sun Myung Moon, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Lyndon LaRouche, and others. Unlike traditional cults that hold their recruits captive in a controlled environment for extended periods, the cult of Trump, according to Hassan, can be cultivated using methods of modern media alone. He cites the fact that several media outlets cooperate in promoting cult-like techniques by cherry-picking data, lying, providing alternative facts, and, perhaps most of all, allowing viewers to feel that they are special and therefore allowed to gain a special type of knowledge available only to those that subscribe to a narrow set of beliefs without question or examination.
Again, the name of the book is The Cult of Trump. A leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control by Stephen Hassan. Well, I could talk about this topic for an hour, but I think you get the point. We'll tune back into the ocean waves in the background, perhaps to relax you a bit as we head into this Christmas season that might be a bit more stressful than many others due to the resurgence of the Omicron variation of COVID. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you'd like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in to our next episode. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you and your family. <laughs>